Hello, my name is Nathan Green. I am a member of the medical section of the Royal Statistical Society and a statistician at University College London. The medical section recently organised an invited session at the RSS conference in Manchester on the 9th of September. The session was titled Novel Advances in Bayesian Health Economics, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Heath, who was one of the presenters at that session. Hi, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, well, before we get into what you talked about in your session, can you briefly introduce yourself, please? Yes, of course. Uh, my name is Dr. Anna Heath. I'm a scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and an assistant professor in the Division of Biostatistics at the University of Toronto. My research primarily focuses on uh, novel statistical methodology for trial design, particularly clinical trials. And I work a lot in the intersection between health economic decision making and how you can use that to design and analyze clinical trials. What did you talk about at the session? So my presentation was uh, to introduce a method known as valued information, which is a method for kind of using uh, health economic decision making and in particular decision theoretic ideas and applying that to the design of research and the prioritization of different research strategies. Um, can I just take a step back for people that don't know, what does decision theoretic mean? Decision theoretic is a branch of statistics that is focused on kind of determining the best method or, or kind of putting it together a framework for making decisions or in particular making the kind of optimal decision under uncertainty. So typically it's a it's a branch of kind of Bayesian statistical methods which looks at kind of averaging or kind of you know averaging over the uncertainty in the parameter estimates and trying to come up with the optimal decision based on that kind of level of uncertainty characterized in probability distributions and some kind of utility function or kind of calculation that helps us compare the value of the different decision options that you might have in your decision problem. Right. So it's, I think we were saying it's trying to come up with some sort of like rational, sensible decision, trying to sort of justify the decisions that we want to make. Exactly, is the theory of rational decision-making under uncertainty. Yeah, okay, cool. I mean, I think you touched on it there. So why would we use that? You, you mentioned uncertainty a lot. Yeah, so um, in particular in health economics, we often are trying to make decisions between different healthcare interventions in terms of which one will be best for implementation in the kind of wider healthcare system. And when we want to make those decisions, we're often... Uh, need to take into account a lot of different considerations. So not just the kind of clinical effectiveness of the treatment, but the costs, the long-term consequences, the quality of life given by those treatments. And often all of those inputs are, are known with relative levels of certainty. So for example, you might have relatively good data on the clinical effectiveness from a previous clinical trial, but maybe the long-term consequences, you know, the lifelong implications of those treatments, we would have much more uncertainty about. So what we try to do is characterize that uncertainty in some way and use these decision models to understand which is the optimal treatment based on what we currently know about the different available treatment options in that disease area. Whose optimal decision is it? So who decides what 
the utilities are and who decides what's good for people and like at what level are the, are the decisions being made at uh, typically in the current kind of use of these methods we consider um a population uh like a um sorry like a government level policy maker essentially mm. so um in the uk we take uh, the national institute of health and care excellence has a framework that kind of takes into account this public health level decision um, yeah. but actually theoretically the decision could be any decision maker so you could do an individual level decision model which would take into account the personal decisions but you know the complication of that is probably a little bit too high and which is why they're typically made at the population or the policy level yeah i suppose that's where the, the budgeting the, the first budgeting decisions made yes uh, Okay, cool. So that sounds, I mean, I'm convinced that sounds useful and sounds like some cool maths, but uh, how would you actually go about calculating it? Um, when we move more into the kind of typical value of information framework, we tend to focus on three key measures, um, which are known by acronyms that do have words, but actually are not very descriptive acronyms. Um, and the complexity of the analysis and the calculation tends to get more complicated um, as the measures become more relevant to research design. Um, so the first measure that we usually calculate is something called the EBPI, which calculates the value of resolving all the uncertainty in your model. So essentially learning the exact optimal treatment because you have no further statistical uncertainty in your model. And that calculation is actually pretty relatively easy. So we have to do it by simulation. But the typical simulation that you would do to kind of understand the impact of uncertainty in a decision model is to simulate values of the parameters from all your parameter distributions and then feed that through the model in a process known as prob a probabilistic analysis. And that probabilistic analysis basically characterizes the distribution of your utility functions for each of your treatment options. Once you have those distributions of the utilities, you can actually calculate the EVPI very easily or relatively easily um, by taking what I call like the row-wise maximums. So basically, if you line up your vectors of utilities, simulated utilities, and you just calculate the maximum utility at each row of that kind of matrix, um, and then you calculate the average of those maximums, and then you need to minus the maximum average utility. So you then calculate the average utility across the columns and then you take the maximum so once you've done a kind of standard probabilistic analysis you can calculate the evpi very easily the next two measures uh, one is the next one is known as the evppi which is the value of learning the exact value of a specific model parameter or a specific subset of model parameters so what that can be used for is to target research towards a specific outcome of interest. So maybe you can discover that you need to learn much more about the prevalence of this disease in the population. And actually the clinical effectiveness that you learned from the clinical trial is not so relevant to kind of supporting our decision-making. So it's a kind of a research prioritization framework. And that in the past required very complex simulation methods. Um, but recently, relatively recently in 2014, I believe, there was a, a novel method developed that essentially fits a regression between the utility values and the parameter of interest. 
And the fitted values from those regressions can be used to calculate the EV PPI. So rather than having to kind of do this really complex simulation process, we just use regression um, between the things, the output that we already have from the probabilistic analysis. And then the final measure, which is the EVSI, is the value of running a specific research study. So you could say, I'm going to run this clinical trial. What's the value of, of running that trial? And there are actually several different methods um, to calculate those. And they each have kind of different pros and cons, depending on the complexity of the model, the complexity of the study that you're actually designing. So how many kind of outcomes you would have in your study. And they kind of range in complexity, computational time. And actually, this is one of the kind of key areas of research that we're kind of working on right now is to make those methods easier to implement and easier to use and easier to kind of work out which one's most relevant to your problem. Right. So where are you at with that? I mean, who's using these methods? So there's been a lot of I mean, relatively a lot of uptake with the EVPI and the EVPPI. Um, in particular, there's an online interface uh, known as Savvy, which can be used to calculate the EVPPI using this regression-based method very easily. And I think a lot of um, publications do now use that software and um, kind of include EVPPI methods as part of their kind of research prioritization paragraph at the end of the paper saying, oh, we should maybe focus research on X. Um, with regards to the EVSI, it's definitely less commonly used, but it certainly uh, is becoming something that people are looking to do. And personally, I have a couple of projects implementing the EVSI in practice um, using these novel methods to try and, and demonstrate how they can be used in particular for clinical trial design. Okay, so it's kind of at the start of its adoption. Yes. Do you think it's going to be used... Well, first of all, do you think it's going to be used in context outside of medicine? And could it be used even before a research project in order to justify its funding, for example, like prior to the project? I guess that's what I would like to start to see happening, that there be some justification of the value of research before you apply for funding. So huge sums of medical of funding is, is given over to medical research. And I think we we should start to be thinking carefully about whether or extracting value for money from that research. That being said, the complexity prior to the research project is that you have to build this decision model. So the way that it's typically been implemented at the moment is when uh, companies are applying for, for research uh, for authorization for their product, they have to build the decision model. So it's only really after that, like, full clinical trial process that they're really applying for the funding and that's when they're building their models and so that's when you can say oh well maybe we should have gathered more evidence on x which is i guess useful as a sensitivity analysis but not useful as a research design or prioritization setting so what we'd be hoping to move into is something where that decision model building is actually done prior to the study as part of the pilot work and then used to kind of help design the study and then reused again at the end of the study to make the decisions. So you still have to build the model. It's just where you build it in the product development like timeline. You'd have to, maybe you'd have to incentivize people to do that. And you'd have to give them like some pre-study money and build them to commit the time. Yeah, I think, um, I guess, away from this exact methodology, like complex, trial designs and study designs are actually becoming more common, um, particularly in 
an era where we had to have very fast moving product development in COVID and also um, as a recognized as a recognition that small populations for different diseases are really struggling to get research done. And these kind of like challenges are leading to more complex designs. And because of that, I think there is more of an appetite to support trial design in the design phase and just making sure that the design is relevant to the research question. Because I think if you don't fund that design phase properly, you actually do end up with the wrong studies being funded and actually wasting yeah. a lot of money. And I think people are, there's a lot more recognition that funding study design is actually a really key aspect of making sure that the research we do is brings value for money, whether that's in a formal value of information setting or just in general. Oh, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, when you were talking, I realized I'm talking, I was thinking in terms of like before and at the beginning at the end, but I suppose there's no reason you couldn't do this sort of uh, kind of online, if you like. You could use it as a stopping rule or you, you use this as some sort of like decision during the project rather than just bookending it. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I kind of see it as part of a kind of a cycle of evidence collection and curation um, where you would exactly do that at different kind of phases. I do see that, you know, I guess in a traditional clinical or like drug development where you have different phases of your trial from maybe it's not worth building that complexity at, say, the phase one where you don't even know whether the drug kind of has any signal for efficacy or or any signal for safety. But I think it, between phase two and phase three trials, there's a really good kind of opportunity to build that kind of modeling in at that point using some of the phase two data and making sure that, you know, you would get approval for your drug after the phase three trial, if it's as effective as you hope. Um, and I think that would also help um, kind of reduce the waste in phase three trials because they are just so intensive and you really would want to make sure you're focusing on informing the whole decision rather than just the clinical kind of effectiveness decision. Yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Um, I suppose some of my experience is there's a gap between great ideas and being taken up and the, in practice. So what do you think you could do to, to give yourself the best chance of being taken up? A lot of what we try to do, I guess, is, uh, I guess, implement it in practice. So I think there's a tendency for methodology to be developed and the same people not to take that forward to practice. So I really, like a lot of my projects, are really trying to do that translational piece where we do actually implement them in practice. I guess there's a lot of advocacy and education as well. So we develop, we have short courses available that we teach on and I'm working with kind of, I guess, policymakers to work out where these methods could fit in practice. And I guess trying to just really be available and, and make these things kind of known about and then show how they're using, develop software, develop kind of educational tools, tutorials to help other people implement them. Yeah, I think just trying to get the word out there and and. I have another project working with the Canadian Agency of Drugs and Technology and Health, trying to work out where these could be implemented in potentially these expedited drug approvals. So where you have like promising results um, and the drugs are being given approval before they've kind of collected that full clinical trial evidence. So maybe on these secondary objectives um, and trying to use valuable information as part of those formal kind of appraisals and asking for the evidence to be collected after the market authorization has been given. So also trying, I guess, to work within currently available funding mechanisms that 
kind of ask for evidence and and things like that. So I guess working in the applied and the and the theoretical space to try and bridge that gap. Okay, cool. So that sounds quite positive. Maybe we should end there. Uh, I'd like to say, uh, well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for talking at our session. And uh, thank you for spending the time to um, talk about this today. Thank you for having me. It's been really great.